This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 15th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Vlad Putin, not a good guy. Even Republicans don't think he's a good guy. But according to a poll by The Economist and YouGov taken just a couple days ago, the Republicans of today aren't that against Vlad. His favorable ratings are 37%. 37% of Republicans said that they have a favorable or somewhat favorable opinion of Vlad Putin. And 47% said very to somewhat unfavorable. So that is a net negative of 10% for Vlad Putin. Now, Barack Obama among Republicans, here are his numbers. 17% somewhat are very favorable. 81% somewhat are very unfavorable. Barack Obama is six times as disliked by Republicans as Vlad Putin is. Come on, Republicans. Are you nuts? I disagree with Republicans on lots of things. I agree on some things. Let me give you some things we agree on. I agree with them on the world court. Not a huge fan. Also, I don't like those government contracts that have to go to minority-owned businesses. They're generally a sham. They distort the market. They don't actually help minorities overall. All right? Establish my common ground. But even where we don't have common ground, it was very useful to have a vigilant Republican Party who was deeply skeptical about foreign bad guys. Sometimes the solutions were a little trigger-happy, but the hawkish skepticism on actors like the North Koreans or the Muslim Brotherhood or indeed Vlad Putin was valuable. It was at least something you could count on. Not anymore. Now, I know Republicans not named Trump or in his thrall are worried about Putin. There's good bipartisan efforts to investigate the Russian hack of U.S. elections. Though on Morning Joe, Steve Ratner advised the president-elect himself, and Morning Joe chimed in. I just want to say something slightly different. I think Trump is doing himself a disservice to attack this whole idea of an investigation and looking into it. totally agree. Because he's making it look like maybe this did have something to do with the election. If he said, look, it had nothing to do with the election, but it was a terrible thing, and therefore I'm in favor of an investigation and we should get on with it, he'd be in a much better position than letting himself be on the other side of this. Well, maybe, but that assumes the Russians really didn't have anything to do with the election. This is like the old advice about political scandals. Oh, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. But sometimes it's the crime. And without the cover-up, we'd know more about the crimes. In other words, if I were Trump and I knew the Russians had a big role in the election, I'd probably take the tact he was taking. We don't need no investigation. This brings me to Rex Tillerson. It always does. Tillerson, CEO of ExxonMobil may run into headwinds among Senate Republicans in his confirmation. His Russia ties, the literally hundreds of billions of dollars of business he's done with Russia, right? It's not the old, that's billions with a B. It's hundreds of billions with a honeybee. So that gives some Republicans pause. The Republicans who are keen to their credit on investigating the Russian hack are guys like Bob Corker, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Ben Sass, Rand Paul. And Marco Rubio, in fact, has specifically said he has serious concerns about Rex Tillerson. So I looked up all the donations from Exxon to these Republicans. 
In the years that these guys were up for election, here's what those senators took from Exxon, either the PAC or employees. Rand Paul, $11,600. That was 2016 when he most recently ran for Senate. John McCain, $10,000. Marco Rubio, $16,700. Lindsey Graham, $11,000. Bob Corker, $10,000. You get the idea. My point here isn't hypocrisy. I'm not charging hypocrisy. Not yet. Hear me out. I don't think that it's necessarily hypocrisy to take money from Exxon, the PAC, or the individual employees. Because all these senators would say, they probably have said, we think Exxon is doing a great job for the American economy and for American workers, and we support America's second or third wealthiest company. Let me also say there are plenty of Democrats who've taken Exxon money. Individuals who work at Exxon contributed $82,000 to Hillary Clinton last year. Barack Obama got over 100000 in Exxon donations in 2012. Again, the point isn't hypocrisy. It's, it's easy but a little unfair to say, wait, you took Exxon money, now you're opposing Tillerson. The point is standing. Do they have the standing to say, we object to you even dealing, even having done any deals with Vladimir Putin, taking the awards from Vladimir Putin, even pretending to be friends with Vladimir Putin, when it was because of these very deals that the company made huge profits, which we, as the senators who took Exxon's money, cheered, can we discriminate against a person for doing business when we eagerly accept the fruits of that very business? Wait, you're saying, that's exactly hypocrisy. It's actually not exactly, and here's why. Here's all Tillerson will have to say. Look, as Exxon chair, I had an objective to follow U.S. law and to make our shareholders wealthy. Along the way, our employees won and energy consumers won, he'll say. And as secretary of state, I will have different objectives. And then, and here's where the standing is, well, what can the senators say to that? If they say, we don't believe you, or, sorry, you're just flat out sullied by your Putin dealings, then they are hypocrites. So what I'm saying is, given this dynamic, it's pretty clear what the right answer will be to a question Tillerson will definitely get. He just has to say, that was me in one job, a job that you supported, and now I'm doing another job, and it's unfair for you not to support me based on what I did in that other job that you supported. And it would be really surprising to me if upon hearing those answers that they're going to hear the Republican senators say anything other than, well, I'll buy that. Perhaps one or two will say, that doesn't fly. I know I'm opening myself up to the charge of hypocrisy, but I'm still rejecting the Tillerson nomination because it's the right thing to do. My personal status be damned. That could happen. It just doesn't seem like the politics I know. On the show today, a special guest joins me in the spiel. We sing Christmas carols. Perhaps you'll sense a family connection. But first, an election law expert looks at the whole scope of what's going on with voting rights in America. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
In North Carolina, a Democratic governor was elected after a very close vote. So what the Republicans in that state did was they called a special session of their legislature. And in that session, they rewrote election laws. The old law said the governor would be able to appoint a majority of seats on the state board of elections and county election boards. But now the Republicans have changed the rules and they have put four seats on every board. So there will be no majority. And they have said that in even number years, the Republican will chair the election board. And the even number years are important because that's when elections take place. Rick Hassan writes the election law blog. He is also a professor of law and politics at UC Irvine. And he looks at the whole scope of U.S. elections and says that we are approaching what seems to be a crisis point. Hello, Rick. How are you? Hi. Good to be with you. I want to ask you about how election law affected the last presidential election, but there's new laws and new rulings coming out all the time in Texas and Virginia. Why don't you just kind of update us on the, on the latest big cases? The biggest cases are the ones that are heading to the Supreme Court, and they're out of Texas and North Carolina. In Texas, the very conservative United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit sitting on bonk, that is all the judges sitting together, found that Texas's voter ID law violated the Voting Rights Act and required the trial court to come and find a way to soften the law so it would not be quite as harsh. And the trial court's also looking into whether Texas acted with racially discriminatory intent in passing its law, which would allow for other remedies. But in the meantime, Texas has gone to the United States Supreme Court to try to get that initial Voting Rights Act ruling overturned. Also, in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina Republican legislature back in 2014 passed a, a very strict set of voting rules, not just about voter ID, but about early voting and about voting if you make a mistake and you vote out of your precinct. That law was challenged. The trial court said the law is just fine, went to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which found that the law was passed with an intentionally racially discriminatory intent. That one, too, is headed to the Supreme Court. And so we're waiting to see if the Supreme Court takes these cases, and if it takes these cases, whether there'll be a ninth justice. And these cases are really going to define the question of how far can states go in making it harder to register and vote. And it's all very hard to figure out how much these laws affect actual rates of voting. Right. And you could do the calculation in a place like Wisconsin pre-voter ID law versus post-voter ID law, but you're dealing with different candidates. So was it the difference between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, or was it the more strenuous, uh, onerous task of actually voting that depressed turnout? And in right. Wisconsin, it does, or in precincts around Milwaukee, turnout certainly does seem to have been depressed. Right. So there was a great story in the New York Times where they went around to African-American neighborhoods in Milwaukee and talked to a lot of people who said, I didn't bother voting. I didn't see much of a difference between Clinton and Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you look at a place like Pennsylvania, where they did not make voting uh, stricter, but we saw the similar decline in turnout rates. Uh, I actually think trying to figure out the turnout question, while that's academically interesting, I think really misses the main legal point, which is, uh, is there a good reason for a state to make it harder for people to register and vote. And if there isn't a good reason, why are courts allowing states to put these barriers in front of voters who want to vote? That is, um, if the state is saying we need these ID laws to stop voter impersonation fraud and to promote public confidence, which are the two arguments that are usually made, but the evidence shows that 
these laws neither prevent any appreciable amount of fraud because people don't commit fraud in this way by impersonating other voters and trying to swing elections, and because studies have shown that public confidence seems to be unrelated to whether or not a state has a voter ID law or not, then what's really going on, and what's really going on, I think, is that uh, Republican legislatures are looking for ways to make it harder for people who are likely to vote for Democrats to register and vote. Now, whether or not it's having that effect or not is secondary to the question of why we would let these uh, states get away with it in the first place. In North Carolina, what about early voting? Because it is known, and maybe you could comment on how well known or how true it is, that early voting tends to favor Democrats, tends to favor uh, poorer people, people who uh, maybe have commitments on that one day of election day, um, making it harder and more onerous to vote early. Uh, how much good evidence is there that that went on? Well, what happened in North Carolina was that the State Board of Elections gave the power to counties to set early voting days and times. And you saw some counties at the urging of the head of the Republican Party in North Carolina uh, putting in very, uh, you know, a small number of hours, a reduced number of days uh, during this period in which people could vote. It's not clear how much the cutbacks in early voting affected turnout in North Carolina. So it's not clear to me yet. Uh, but what is clear, again, is that the intent was to put this rollback in uh, as a means of uh, making it less likely that Democrats are going to have an advantage. Because although it used to be that Republicans and Democrats used early voting in similar ways, Democrats have really tried to take advantage of it more uh, than Republicans. And it's probably no coincidence that last week you had Donald Trump remarking that early voting seemed like it was a prob- problematic and suggesting that it should be looked at and potentially rolled back. It would be kind of an odd rule that says that North Carolina can't go from 17 days to 10 days of early voting when you have states like New York and Pennsylvania, which offer zero days of early voting. Yeah. In New York and Pennsylvania, if you don't uh, vote on election day, or have a good excuse to get an absentee ballot, you're out of luck. And so uh, are we going to have different rules for Republican states that can't roll back laws versus Democratic states that can do what they want? Although in New York, where I asked for an absentee ballot, you just have to be out of the county on Election Day. So since I live in Brooklyn and drop my kids off in New York, I qualify. Well, you know, it's a little harder in Pennsylvania, and it is probably not a good reason for that. And if New York were in the South... I bet you'd see voting rights groups jumping up and down about how terrible New York election laws are in a way that they don't uh, as much when it is a solidly democratic place. Before 2016, a lot of these laws were on the books, and it turned out, or at least it was reported, that there might have been a backlash, that the laws might have backfired because, for instance, the African-American community uh, had been warned that they're trying to take away our vote. So they came out in droves and in extra numbers. Has this been proved? That's right. So there is this backlash idea. It's also very hard to disentangle. There's no question, uh, as I uh, argue in my 2012 book, The Voting Wars, that both sides use the fight over voting rules to gin up turnout and to fundraise. Uh, That is, uh, you know, that's a pattern that we've seen since the year 2000. Don't let them take away your vote. Don't let them steal your vote. Don't let them win by fraud all these kinds of arguments. It's certainly true that voting rights advocates and Democrats uh, came out and uh, campaigned on this issue. But 
it's hard to know what the turnout would have looked like if there was no campaigning on this issue. So it's, it's a very, turnout is a really difficult nut to crack and to know what's motivating it. Uh, but certainly, uh, Democrats and Republicans both tried to fundraise and to um, make their political statements based on what the other side is doing, voter fraud versus voter suppression. It's this war that's now been going on for a decade and a half. All right. Do you have any predictions about what might happen? Well, I'm very worried that uh, there are going to be new cutbacks proposed on the federal level. I think one of the key areas to watch is a law, not the Voting Rights Act, but the National Voter Registration Act, the Motor Voter Law that was passed in 1993 and signed by President Bill Clinton. Uh, That law, among other things, uh, provides for that states and local governments have to make voter registration materials available in DMV offices and in uh, places that offer public assistance. It has been a real boon for voter registration across the country, but it has also been a target of attack for um, conservatives, including uh, those who want to require documentary proof of citizenship before people are allowed to register to vote. And I think that There are going to be parts of the NVRA that are going to be on the chopping block, potentially, in Congress. And it's something that everyone's going to have to watch. Rick Hassan is the founder, main proprietor of the Election Law blog. He is a professor at UC Irvine School of Law. Thanks so much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. So I don't know if you've been able to discern this or not, but on the show, I sometimes talk about my life and just things that happen to me. It gives me fodder for especially this portion of the show. I mean, did you hear yesterday's spiel? It was entirely premised upon the fact that last night a cat jumped on my face. 
Last night a cat jumped on my face. That really happened. And another thing that happened was, and people have asked me, why don't you talk about this on the show? So now I will. My children were on Jimmy Kimmel. They've been on a couple of times. Most recently, Jimmy and Guillermo combined to do the homework helper guys segment. I have to admit, they don't really help that much with the homework. But the kids found it funny. People found the kids funny. So people ask me, why are your children so funny? And I usually brush off. I just think of it as a compliment. But then I was thinking about it a little bit. And I think there might be a reason. A a few reasons. One, humor is currency in our house, for sure. It's emphasized. Two, you know, I've enrolled them in acting classes and so forth. But I think a big reason has to do with a wrinkle of parenting in New York City. So I think the way that a lot of parents and their children interact is in cars, front seat to back seat. And there is no way to execute that interaction that's not somewhat dictatorial. I mean, you could have conversations and you could involve everyone and you could go around the car in a game. But still, the dad, the mom in the front seat are dictating, say, the music choices or if you have DVD players or whatever. They're sort of dictating the conversation. They're not really looking at the children. And so the flow of information goes from parent to child. It's top down. There's nothing wrong with that. Based on that, I think kids can learn a lot. Um, I would say that in the times when I have been in a car, that I've used it to try to uh, deepen the musical education of my children. For instance, I didn't realize, they didn't know Whoop, There It Is, and then I played it for them, and now they know Whoop, There It Is. But the main way that I interact with my children is not front to back seat. It's either side to side or face to face, because I bring them to school via the subway. And on the subway, we're either looking at each other or walking next to each other or sitting next to each other. So the other day, while walking to the subway, We were singing some Christmas carols, my son Emmett and I. Santa Claus is coming to town. And then he changed the lyrics spontaneously to... Donald Trump is coming to town. Okay, so I should say, joining me now, you've seen him on the Jimmy Kimmel show, also Katie Couric's show. And what are your other credits, Emmett? What what other shows have you been on? This one, The Gist. The Gist. Okay, yes, you know him from The Gist. And Emmett is here, and we're going to play for you and show to you what we do on the subway with the Christmas Carol classic. Donald Trump is coming to town. All right. So what we do is I, uh, I'm going to say I trick Emmett into reading. I have two papers with me every day, the New York Times and the Washington Post. And so we take the idea of Donald Trump coming to town and we pivot off the day's headlines. Like here's today's Wall Street Journal. Now, Emmett, I'll help you. There's a woman's last name, but can you read this headline? Yellen Trump on some? Uh, Same. Same. Yeah, the font's weird. Refinger a little bit. Paid for now. Okay. Uh, So then what I would try to do is think of a good rhyme for this. Maybe something like, will the Fed Reserve Chair and Trump get in a row? Well... Yelling Trump on same page for now. Donald Trump, Trump is, is coming, coming to, to town. town. All right, next headline. I guess it was very funky. Donald Trump has a monkey going to war with Canada. Isn't really funny. <laughs> okay, let's read this one. A Trump tactic. Face roadblock. It's faces, right? Yeah. Faces roadblock. And you think a tactic is the opposite of a tic-tac. Like a big candy that makes your teeth rot. 
So a, t- a tactic is the opposite of a tic-tac. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let me think of a rhyme for this. Um, in the late 80s, he went deep into hawk. Go. A Trump tactic faces low with a block. Donald Trump is coming to, to town. town. Now, now, I have noticed Wall Street Journal headlines, they're pretty good with the rhyme scheme and the meter. But the New York Times, they, they try to shove so much into their headlines. To wit. To fight Trump, Democrats yeah. look to a GOP tic, ta, no, tactic. Okay, so I'll say this. Um, his enemies are going to be sick. To fight Trump, Democrats look at GOP tactic. Donald Trump Trump is coming to town. So in this way, we Christmas carol, we make up rhymes, we read the papers, we learn the difference between general and genial, and we learn definitions of words. Like what is the definition of uh, tactic? A large candy that makes a teeth rot at its big, the opposite of a tic-tac. It also means a strategy. But if you want to go with tactic as the opposite of a tic-tac, that's fine. Yeah? Yeah. This way, the side-to-side subway collaboration type way of interacting with one's children, not the right way, not the way that everyone can do, but it does answer the question, hey, how'd your kids get so funny? I do think this has something to do with it. Anyway, that's my theory. If you don't like it, I hope it won't get you down, cause... Donald Trump is coming to town. And that's it for today's show. He sees you when you're sleeping. He has a naughty list. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson, they both produce the gist. Oh, licked he hopes. The gist, it won't last. He's the executive producer of Slay Podcasts, but... Donald Trump is coming to town. Licktie gives... Andy Bowers grief. He's got to take it as Panoply's content officer in chief. And Donald, Donald Trump, Trump is, is coming, coming to town. town. The gist tomorrow featuring Trump nuts roasting on an open fire. Mike, Mike Pence, Pence nipping, nipping at, at you your right. rights. Mike Flynn's son denies he's an alt right liar. And Scott Pruitt's taking global warming. To new heights. Though it's been said many times, many ways. Um Peru de Peru du Peru. And good night. Take a bow. Excellent.